Welcome to episode 117 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jinstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 117 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am awesome. How are you? I'm good. Why are you awesome? Well, I just am. I'm just in general awesome. <laughs> Life is good. I love summer. It's hot. I like it. <laughs> I like winter. It's cold. <laughs> I'm I'm ready for Christmas. Yeah, I'm not. No, no, no. <laughs> I did go pick up – well, I took Ellie to the vet this morning. Ellie's my cat that had the broken leg, and she got her cast off, so that's very exciting. The You know, nerve damage takes a while. He said if it's not recovering within the next two weeks, they're going to amputate her. Sweet little tail. Aw. She'll be a little bobcat, but it's it's better than having it dangling there because it could actually cause her to be injured, you know, getting in the way. I wonder if that happens if she'll start falling off of things. Because don't cats <laughs> use it for balance? Well, she can't use it now, so it's it's not helping her now. So I haven't seen her fall off anything, but she's been in a cast, so. <laughs> well, I had two random epiphanies this week. Oh, I'd love to hear them. They're very, very random, but I was like, I made notes of them. The first one was... You know how we've been talking so much about like mindset and perspective and and things and interpreting I don't know cuz I've been doing a lot of research on have you heard of the DNRS program? I mean not in those in that terminology so I don't know if I have I'm thinking no. It's the dynamic neural retraining system. I've actually started doing it but it's basically the idea that a lot of health like chronic health issues like even food sensitivities or like Lyme disease or chronic environmental sensitivities and things like that. And even like fibromyalgia, like so many things that they involve basically the limbic system in the brain. And basically after some initial trigger or trauma, the limbic system starts associating tons of things as a threat. And so you start reacting negatively to things. And so I found it like really, really fascinating. And I actually want to get the founder on my new podcast, side note. That aside, I had an epiphany because I've just been thinking a lot about how we experience things physically in the world and, you know, how we interpret sensations of health and pain and happiness and everything. And I and I realized when you're asleep, like when you're dreaming, you can enter a state where you don't I mean, you don't have any of these negative health issues necessarily. You know, like when you're, people who might have chronic pain might in their dreams have no chronic pain or digestive issues might have no digestive issues. And so if that's possible, that's a perspective in your brain to be in this state where you're not experiencing that, even though your body physically, like if you woke up, you'd be experiencing it. Well, I I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I haven't read it, so I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm just saying I, my epiphany was that clearly we can have this state of being where we're not experiencing, we're not interpreting or experiencing a physical sensation from our body. And that happens when we're asleep. 
So I could see how that could happen while you were awake as well. So it's like using using your brain, training your brain to not notice those sensations. Is that what I did? What it is? Well, the, like I said, this is not the same thing as the DNRS. I was just saying that was one of the things that spurred me to think about this. Was I've just been thinking a lot about how we interpret the physical sensations of our body and our health and everything, and how we can change that with our mindset. And then I think like a really good example of that is when you're dreaming, you don't experience. You can enter states where you don't experience these negative things. So clearly our brain can be in a state where we're not experiencing those. Does that make sense? I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I don't know. <laughs> Dreaming like lots of things in dreams are, I mean, dreams are, are not real. So you're like, like somebody's dreaming, they're eating food, for example, and they're experiencing all the sensations, but yet they're not really doing it. So I don't know. I'm not sure. It is interesting to contemplate. It is. Maybe I'm missing the point. <laughs> could be true. I just woke up and I was like, wow, in my dream last night, I didn't have any digestive issues. Like that wasn't even a thing in my dream. And so if that can, if my brain can be in a state where I'm experiencing things, but not even thinking about that or not even being aware of that when I like I went to bed not feeling so well digestively. But then when I entered the dream, I didn't have any of that. So clearly your brain cannot can stop listening to signals from your body for the better, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think I understand what you're saying. I'm just trying to motivate people to say that maybe we can um, reinterpret our reality to our benefit. I'm trying to come up with an anal- an analogy for it, and I'm I'm I got nothing. <laughs> okay, but that's all right. I did have one other epiphany. Oh, okay, share it. If you're trying to do something really hard that you think you can never do, if you can do it once, it's kind of like doing it a million times because once you've done it once, you know you can do it, and then you can do it a million times. So for like with fasting, maybe you think, oh, I could never. You know, maybe somebody's doing a 16-8 pattern and they're like, I could never fast 24 hours. And that seems so hard. But I, but for a lot of people, I think if they can do it once, then they know they can do it. And then it's like they can, it, it opens the possibilities for doing it, you know, indefinitely. So it's not like, it's like, it's so much motivation because it's like, you're not just doing it once in a way you're doing it forever. If you can just do it once. If you can do it once, you know, you can do it. Yeah. I think it's true because the fear of something is is people not knowing if they can do it. They're, and so they're afraid to even start because they're like, well, I just don't even think I could do that. So they don't even try. But once they show they can do it, they know they can do it. Yeah, that makes sense. I totally get that one. Okay, yay. <laughs> that was a better epiphany then. <laughs> yeah, I get that one. Oh, I also, I interviewed yesterday for my new show, Dr. Ken Brown again. He's a great guy. I love Dr. Brown. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yes. The first, we have some feedback from Anna Marie. And she says, first, thank you to you both for your wonderful podcast on IF. I truly enjoy listening to each episode and feel as if I'm gaining valuable information. Melanie, please don't ever stop your research and sharing the science with us all. I would love if you would write a book on IF, including all your research on specific topics. I'm old school. I still enjoy physical books. Okay, wait, I'm going to stop you right there. So 
I, I was I was hoping you would. I, I do have a book <laughs> on this Anne Marie. It's What When Wine. So it and it is a physical book and Kindle and audiobook, but it does have all of the research on IF. So definitely check that out. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yes. And so I will continue. She says, Jen, I am 54, so I appreciate your positive, mature perspective on IF and will be ordering your book. Thank you. Yes, I'm about to hit 50, so I'm feeling more mature (laughs) by the day. I actually told somebody I was 50 the other day, and my son said, no, you're not. I'm like, well, I'm rounding. It's it's really close. (laughs) All right, back to Anne-Marie. She says, my height is 5'7", and currently I weigh 136 pounds. Of course, that is not my final goal weight. I don't know. That sounds like a really good weight, Anne-Marie. I know. I heard that and I was like, that sounds pretty good. But if you use the ideal weight, I mean, I know that it's different. It has to do with frame size, how much body fat you have, so many things. But I remember the formula I was using to try to come up with my, you know, ideal weight at one point. It's 100 pounds for the first five feet and then five pounds per inch after that. So for five, seven, that would put you at 135 for that specific formula. Of course, if you have a very small frame, then, you know, you want to subtract a little bit. And at 136, even using that formula, I can see one pound is not quite (laughs) quite there. But it really, you know, consider that you may just want to work on a little body recomposition versus trying to lose scale weight. So back to back to her feedback, she says, I've been doing IF on and off for two to three years. Within the last three to four years, I have done juice fasts. I own a juicer, fasts with water, tried different supplements and vitamins, grow my own sprouts and some herbs, take apple cider vinegar, chop up garlic in the AM and down with water. I've gone vegetarian. I've done yoga, weight training, walking, mini stepping. I've done Whole30 twice, once as a vegetarian and once as a meat eater. I've read articles and listened to endless videos and bought my own personal enema kit. I take one medication for hypothyroidism for over 23 years. Now I deal with menopause and constantly battle my demon, sugar addiction. Overall, I am thankful for my good health. Yes, I have stubborn fat that I now accept may never go away. With an obsessive slash extremist personality, I, like others, find all the information available for great health can be overwhelming. At one point, I just threw up my hands and stopped taking all vitamins, etc., and downsized my entire health routines. I had to share with you that the biggest takeaway that I appreciate from listening to you both is every body is different, and one has to experiment to find out what works best for that individual. Please keep spreading that message. I don't really have a question currently, as any that I previously had, you have already addressed. I wanted to share a little bit about myself so you could see that you have older listeners too. Keep on motivating us. I appreciate all your hard work. And again, thank you so much for your IF podcast. And Anne-Marie, I do not think of 54 as an older listener. (laughs) I just have to say that. (laughs) All right, Melanie, what would you like to say? I agree. I love this email from (laughs) Anne-Marie. And I think, I mean, I really relate to it as far as trying all the things and having different things work at different times and having everything be in a way, on the one hand, a constant battle to try to figure out what's best for you, but also just knowing that there are so many potential different routes to health and you can always try new things. And yeah, I found it really motivating and wonderful. And what are your thoughts, Jen? I want 
to just in, hit one topic that she mentions, and that's the stubborn fat that, quote, may never go away. I think we need to shift the way we look at our bodies and our, quote, stubborn fat and realize we're supposed to have certain levels of fat as women, especially. I know men, men do too, but women, we're supposed to hold fat differently. I mean, we're physically designed to do that. And so when we look at like, let's say you're watching the Victoria's Secret runway show, these women don't have that stubborn fat, but genetically, that's just the way they were made. And so I might look at that and then look at myself and see, you know, a little stomach flab, a little cellulite on my thighs, or a lot of stomach flab, a lot, you know, I think we're supposed to be soft. We're, we're supposed, you know, in general, women are supposed to be soft. We're supposed to have softer bellies. We're supposed to have fat on our thighs. And we can get caught up in chasing this ideal form that really is on the extreme end of the way people actually look in real life. And then we can be unsatisfied with how we look because of that expectation that that we think we could get there. But honestly, I don't think I could. I mean, I could like continue. I, I could, you know, do some extreme dieting and I don't know what would happen with my body. I think it wouldn't be good for me, but I still don't think I would ever have that look. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does completely. I think that's something really, really good to point out. And I, I mean, I think it's almost an inescapable, I had a word for it. Well, I think it's just so prevalent right now in our culture when we see, you know, all these magazines and things are filtered and people are airbrushed and we're looking at this idea of perfection of what we're supposed to look like. And we think that if we just hit it hard in the gym and eat the right foods and find the magical thing, take the right supplements, that we're going to get that magical no fat or low body fat. And I just don't think that that's reality. And I think we have to just accept, you know, even, even those fashion models, I'm sure have areas they would consider to be trouble areas that they've spent a lot of time obsessing over. And, you know, they're like, you know, got the rock hard abs. I'll never have those. <laughs> I never have. And it, it's just, it's, it's so sad that, that I do still look at my thighs sometimes and feel a little self-conscious about them. That's exactly what I was going to say was that it's a unfortunate side effect of modern society today, just being surrounded by these airbrushed images. And I think everybody, I mean, not everybody, but Many, many people su- suffer with insecurities about themselves, even ones that seemingly, you know, look, quote, perfect in the Instagram photos or the runway pictures or the magazine photos. And it's really, really hard when we're constantly comparing ourselves to these perfect images that aren't even aren't even real. Right. And so then we think we have stubborn fat when really that's just how you're supposed to be. Like I could look at myself and say, I've got all this stubborn fat that I, you know, quote, can't lose. But I think that it's just, we're supposed to be a little soft. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm just, I, this is a battle of my own too. So Anne-Marie, don't, I'm, I'm speaking it because, you know, like, like so many people, I struggle with it as well. And, you know, I didn't even wear shorts from the time I was in. Of course, when I was in college, we were wearing real puffy shorts. I mean, they were not attractive, the shorts of the 80s. Melanie, it's lucky that you missed it. Although I think they're kind of coming back, these puffy clothes. They were not flattering. We didn't look good at them. They were pleated, puffy, and not not the least bit flattering for our bodies. But I, they were also like would come right down to the knee. 
And other than shorts like that, I didn't wear shorts for my entire adult life because I didn't like the way my legs looked. And it wasn't until the past few years that I'm like, you know what? I don't even care. I don't care if you don't like the way my legs look, look away. I'm going to wear the shorts and I'm not wearing the long ones. I'm wearing the four inch shorts. And yes, I've still got cellulite. I also think it's really interesting how at different times in our lives, we may fixate on different parts of our body. And I think that's really telling too, because I know, I mean, I struggle with all of this body image. You have no idea, like so bad, but that's one of the things I'll think about is I'll fixate on things now that I didn't fixate on growing up. And it's like, why at one point are you looking at, you know, one thing here and then one thing there when, um, yeah, that's why I'm just trying to constantly move towards the overall acceptance. And I think, I really honestly think that the true beauty comes from within, yeah. And confidence. Definitely agree. And and accepting, you know, I, I was on the beach, you know, a few weeks ago and, you know, I, I watched a lady walk down the beach and she was probably somebody's great grandma and she had great grandma legs and she was owning it in that bathing suit and walking confidently down the beach. I mean, you know, my legs are I'm like almost 50, like I said, and you get saggier as you get older. You're t- it just happens. And it's just a feature of getting older. And I want to be that great grandma, you know, in however many years, 40 years from now, when I'm walking down the beach, I just gonna, I'm just going to walk down the beach in my bathing suit. I think that's wonderful. I hope I'm, <laughs> I hope I'm right there with you. Yeah. So I remember admiring her and thinking, She's just walking down the beach and I'm like, you know, sitting here putting on my little wrap and and she doesn't care. And that's what I want to be. I don't want to care. I don't want to worry about it. And and like I said, it's still I'm still a work in process and I think a lot of people understand that. I am now wearing the shorts. I'm wearing the bathing suit, but I'm still sometimes think about it. But less than I used to. Yeah. But I really enjoyed this question. So thank you, Emory. And we're all just going to keep being works in progress. <laughs> all right. So our next question comes from Amanda and the subject is fast or fuel for a big physical event. Amanda says, hi guys, love your podcast. I haven't quite caught up yet. And I've heard you talk about fuel for exercise a lot. So forgive me if you've covered this. I've been fasting for about a month. I change it up every day, sometimes 16, eight, sometimes one meal a day, depending on how I'm feeling. In a few weeks, I have a mountain climb coming up, a few days of hiking and camping on a mountain. This is a lot of physical exertion compared to my usual daily activities. I was running, but have slowed down on that since I started IF. I've been a little more gentle on my body lately by walking while pushing a stroller and using the stair stepper at the gym for 30 to 45 minutes to help prepare for the climb. I usually feel pretty good while exercising in a fasted state. Sometimes I feel phenomenal. My question is this. Should I try fasting during the climb? Part of me feels like I should fuel for something that taxing, but I'm not sure if that's just old thinking that's not really supported by science. I don't want to fuel and then feel all sluggish and heavy, but I also don't want to pass out or something because I don't know how my body reacts to such intense activity in a fasted state. What do you think? All right. What are your thoughts, Jen? Well, you know, if she had been doing it for longer, the answer would be a lot easier. The fact that Amanda has been doing IF for a month is a very important factor. You know, she still might not be completely 
fat adapted to the point that she's going to be able to fuel herself well on such a big climb. But maybe she is. You know, maybe she she is going to be fine. So if she'd been doing IF for a long, long time and had been working out in the fasted state for a long time, I would say she'd probably be fine. But since she's new, even though she's been working out and has been fine, I would do this. I would like pack up a bunch of stuff and carry it in a pack with me that I could eat if I needed to. You're going to know. I don't think you're suddenly going to like one minute you're fine and the next minute it's awful. I would just pay attention to how you're feeling. And if you start feeling like, oh, I need a little fuel, I'm dragging, go ahead and eat something then. You know, it's easier to do that than it is to, you know, if you don't have any food at all, that that would be a bad idea. Or if you, you know, decide to just go ahead and fuel up, I agree with you. I think that if I was going to go on a climb and I fueled up ahead of time, I would actually feel draggier during the climb. That That's just me. Again, I've been fasting for a long time, so... I just, I think that you want to have stuff with you for quick energy if you need it. And at the first sign that you feel a little shaky or unwell, go ahead and have it. But you might surprise yourself and feel great. But the key is going to be really pay attention and don't let it get to the point where you've, you've gone too far. What do you think, Melanie? That was my exact suggestion that I wrote down. Yeah, basically, I mean, I don't see any reason. I don't like, this is something else to keep working on, like being in the moment and not having unnecessary anticipatory fear about things, but instead just dealing with things in the moment. So I don't see the the benefit in anticipating that you're going to not be fueled enough. I would say go to it, you know, feel like, feel confident that you can do it fasting, but bring, like Jen said, bring along some snacks based on the type of food that does fuel you very well. So I don't know what type of diet you're following. So if you're doing, you know, if you do well on more ketogenic type approaches, maybe you want to bring along, you know, some nuts or like an avocado or something like that. If you do well on, you know, more carbs, you could bring like fruit or, you know, like the type of food that you know will provide good energy for you in that moment. I think that's important. The quote snack food that works for you for quick energy, bring it along. And like Jen said, I don't think you're going to be like completely fine and then pass out. There's probably going to be a a transition there. So if the moment comes, you can have the snack if you need it. Also, you might want to bring along electrolyte type water or some sort of drink like that, because that could also play a part. Um, I recently just ordered, because Rob Wolf keeps talking about it on his podcast, the the LMNT, Element Recharge. Have you heard of it, Jen? I have not, because I don't listen to podcasts. (laughs) Sorry. Yep. I only hear of things if people ask about them in the in the group repeatedly because that's basically what I do all day long is answer questions in the group. I don't know if it's actually his company. I mean, he's very it's either his company or he's very strongly affiliated with it. It's an electrolyte drink and apparently people are swearing by it. So I actually ordered it because they have one that is completely unflavored. So it'd be great for the fast. It's basically just magnesium, potassium and then like the the right sodium ratios. And um, it's also for people on ketogenic diets, but that might be something that you could look into. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Awesome. All right. Ready for our next one? This is from Peggy, and the subject is fasting and IV therapy. She says, hi, ladies. I love your podcast and have learned a great deal. I look forward to it each week and stalk your respective Facebook pages. I do IV therapy for overall health and anti-aging benefits. I generally do the Myers cocktail, but will also add glutathione. Is that how you say it? 
Glutathione. Sometimes. What's your thoughts on doing this during my fasting window? Will it impact my fast? Thanks in advance and look forward to your response, Peggy. Yes. So love this question from Peggy. Interesting question. We have not received this before, but so I love, (laughs) I love IV therapy. I've done a lot of intravenous glutathione. I actually need, I need to find a place now that I'm in Atlanta to start doing it again because it's was wonderful for me when I was doing it in LA. The Myers cocktails, that's usually like B vitamins and things like that. I don't see any reason that this would break your fast. It's basically just putting nutrients straight into your bloodstream, like vitamins and then glutathione, which is glutathione is like the master antioxidant substance generated by the body to deal with oxidative stress and just basically to deal with everything that goes wrong in the body. So a lot of people do supplemental glutathione. The problem is you can't really take it orally. It's not absorbed so well. So the best way to get it in a supplemental form is with IV therapy. Have you ever had any of this, Jen? Have you had um, like a Myers cocktail or glutathione? I would like for you to take a guess and decide on that based on what you know about Jen. Listeners, before I tell you the answer, I would like you to predict, has Jen ever done this? Let's play a game. Has Jen ever done? Well, we already know Melanie has done this. Okay. <laughs> no, I have not. I have not ever done this. But I bet listeners knew that. I've never done it, thought about it, read about it, considered it. <laughs> I remember the first time I got a Myers cocktail and I was literally it, this. I was like, wow, this is what it feels like to be alive. Like it felt amazing. But what are your thoughts, Jen, on how it would affect fasting? Yeah, I think you're right. You know, things are different when they go straight into our bloodstream versus when we ingest them through our digestive system. So I would just keep doing it. If that's the time that you want to do it, I would just do it then. I agree. All right. So now we have two questions and they're kind of similar. I'll read one. We can address it and then we'll do the next one. But so the first one is from LJ and the subject is hunger signals. And LJ says, Hello, Melanie and Jen. I've been listening to your podcast almost from the beginning and look forward to Monday's episodes. Because of your intelligent and friendly manner, you too are a delight to hear, and I feel confident in the advice you pass along. My question is about hunger. We are supposed to listen to our bodies for satiety when we eat. I have a question, Jen. Is it satiety or... I keep hearing that pronounced different ways. I say satiety. I do too, but I, I, I keep... Okay. Sometimes people say things wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's funny when you hear someone say it wrong. And then you're like second guess everything. Yeah, then you second guess yourself. And then sometimes there are actually words that can be said more than one way. You know, there's one word that is just really funny. You know the word plantain that everyone pronounces plantain? Like the banana thing? Well, I was pronouncing it plantain. This is back in the 90s. I was doing a a cooking lesson with children with my third grade gifted kids at the time. This is probably 94. That's how long ago it was. And the parent that was there helping me, she said, I believe it's pronounced plantain. And I'm like, oh, I've only ever heard plantain. And I looked it up and she was right. It was plantain, not plantain. And ever since then, I've only heard people say plantain. So a lot of people say words incorrectly. Oh, and here it is. I just looked it up. Now they're saying it different on this. <laughs> I just looked up. Now everybody's saying plantain. At the time, <laughs> plantain is what it what it the the dictionary said. But you know what? Language changes. So if you know, when I looked in the dictionary back in 1994, and it said plantain was the correct way to pronounce it. 
if everyone says plantain, that becomes the correct way to pronounce it because language changes and grows. I really want to be in the board meetings of like the Webster Dictionary people. When they change something, they're like, you know what? I know that plantain is what it used to be, but everyone says plantain. So let's just fix that. (laughs) Anyway, so there's the point. So I say satiety. And if it's wrong, I've always just said it wrong. So we are supposed to listen to our bodies (laughs) for satiety when we eat and what foods make us feel better than others. I've heard about pushing past those nagging hunger feelings during the fast to get us to the desired fasting length. But how important is it to listen to one's hunger signals when your fast is almost over? What types of hunger should I not go past? Can I slow my weight loss by extending beyond my fast too long? If so, what are the hunger clues of which to be aware? Thanks in advance for addressing these questions. I look forward to hearing your reply. So we can go ahead and um, talk about this one. So what are your thoughts, Jen? Well, I think that you learn over time to listen to these and you understand when it's time to eat and when it isn't. Here's something you never ignore. Never ignore a feeling of shakiness and nausea like you've had a blood sugar crash. Don't push through that. If you feel like your blood sugar's crashed and you're shaky and you're nauseous, nauseous, please eat. You know, you don't want to push through. If your stomach is growling and you're just like, oh, I'm feeling a little hunger signal, that you can push through. But you kind of know, like whether whether you over time. See, I think back to the days when I was trying to do intuitive eating, and I had read all the books on intuitive eating, and it made so much sense. And we were supposed to ask ourselves, am I hungry? And if the answer was yes, we were supposed to eat. Well, every time I asked myself, am I hungry? The answer was yes. And so then I just ate. And then, of course, I never lost any weight ever, and I was eating all the time. So you know, little sensations we feel in our body, that doesn't necessarily actually equate to got to eat right now. It's just like a wave of stomach growling or a, you know, a mechanical action going on or a thought, huh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I feel like I, I could eat right now. I find though, if you, you know, try to distract yourself and get busy and the feeling passes, then you know it was okay. If the feeling builds and builds and builds, go ahead and eat. Yeah, that's something I often talk about that book, The Yoga of Eating, which is about intuitive eating. And I actually narrate the audiobook for it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's amazing. That's one of the things he says is that a craving should get less with time. So, you know, if you wait it out, it should go away. Whereas true hunger grows stronger with time. So you wouldn't, I don't think you can really wait out true hunger but you can definitely wait out a craving. So that's that's one little test you could do. At, like what Jen said is, you know, give it a certain amount of time and see if it passes. How, how much time would you give it, Jen, to evaluate if it's like a craving? Well, I just, you know, keep doing what I'm doing or doing something else, find something to do, get busy. And usually I forget about it. And so I don't like give myself a time at all. But sometimes I'll look at the clock and it'll be like two o'clock and I'll have a little stomach rumble and I'm like, oh, I could eat something now. And then I think about that and I'm like, oh, I could wait. And then, you know, I look up again and it's 430. I'm like, all right, now I think I'll have a little something. You know, there's really no set advice. Just see if you can distract yourself and move on. And if if it's easy to do that, then, you know, it wasn't true hunger. It's very complicated and nuanced just because of our modern society and our often most people's present states of weight, 
even the quote, true, true hunger, I don't think most people, most people have ample body fat to sustain them for quite a while. I'm not advocating going on, on a long fast or anything like that, but I'm saying most people do have the resources for that. And then on the flip side, the other thing that makes things complicated is because of the way our modern food system works and because of often like insulin problems or the over, that's another word, palatable. That's a word that's often pronounced different ways, <laughs> but I've heard it pronounced really weird ways. Um, but the over palatability of foods can mess with our hunger signals. I think it goes back to what Jim was saying about how, you know, you did the intuitive eating thing and the answer was, am I hungry? Your answer was always yes. Jen, I feel like you and I are really similar in that regard. It's funny because when I read things, because the only time I'm really not hungry is when I'm like really in the fasted state and then I'm good. But once I'm eating, I mean, I I, I feel like I can always pretty much keep eating. <laughs> I, I've always been that way though. Even Even when I was much younger and even when I weighed much more than I did now, I was never the type of person that would say no to food, even if I was not seemingly hungry. I don't know if that has to do with like insulin regulation or I was always in awe of people who would, who could seemingly just, you know, eat. Like I remember thinking the concept of, you know, eat till you're 80% full. That always seemed like such a terrible concept to me. I was like, I was like, oh. No, <laughs> um, that always just sounded so terrible to me. Because you like the feeling of being full. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. To, I mean, I like to feel, you know, pleasantly full. I've gotten better at hearing satiety now and stopping when I've had enough. Like last night, we had a house showing at 630 and we had to go out for dinner. And so we went and had pizza. I was like, we got to have pizza. We hadn't had pizza in a long time or like at least pizza out. So we went to a, a local pizza restaurant and you know, there was half a piece of pizza left. And I was like, you know, I could eat that. I'm like, no, nah, I've had enough. And I was, you know, pleasant. I knew if I'd eaten it, I would feel overly full. So I stopped. But it was delicious. I do think that's one other thing that for anybody who's experimented with longer fasts, Jen, have you ever, have you ever experimented with a longer fast? I have back, you know, in the day, back when I was still in the, the trying to lose weight phase, I experimented with, with all the types of fasting. Yes. I do think that's one of the things like a beneficial mindset or mentality shift that you can learn from a longer fast if it's something that, you know, could fit into your lifestyle and your your personal health situation is how you do become aware of the what they call like, you know, the waves of hunger. It makes it more clear what's hunger and what's appetite and what's a wave and what's real, if that makes sense. I, I do think we, we start to feel it and figure it out, but it takes a long time. Yeah, I agree. Did you want to address her other questions? Oh, yeah. She asked if she could slow weight loss by extending her fast too long. And yeah, I, I do think so. But don't don't let that scare you, what I just said, because I, there's a point where if you keep fasting, then your body's going to slow back down. I was just, you know, rereading that study. I can't remember what year it was from, but where they followed the the volunteers who fasted for 72 hours. So they studied these people and they they tested them at I think 12 hours and then at 36 hours and then along the way and all the way up to 72 hours. And they found, for example, their 
metabolic rate at that 12 hours, you know, was a certain thing. And then at 36 hours, it was higher than it had been at 12 hours. And then at 72 hours, it had started to go back down. It was lower than it was at 36 hours, but still higher than it had been at 12. So imagine it like a little, like a little curve at 12. It was at one point, then at 36, it was up. And then at 72, it was going back down. So even though it was still higher than it was at 12, the fact that it was going back down shows me that, hey, metabolic rate does start to go down when you're fasting longer. So, I mean, we don't have studies beyond that of like what keeps happening because they just haven't done them. That would be interesting. I would love to see it. I don't know if they would, but, you know, at what point does it start to go down? And I know that LJ might not have even been asking about extended fasting, but the question you know, if you extend your fast too long, yes, I do think there's a point at some point after 72, and this could also vary from person to person because this was the average, you know, they were averaging the whole group together to come up with these numbers. The average number did this, you know, so there's going to be a point when our metabolic rate might go back down because our body is trying to protect us. And so if we just knew exactly, wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) You know, but we're all so different. You know, my metabolic rate might start to go down at, you know, X hours, whereas yours starts to go down at Y hours, which is why we can't make any generalizations that should apply to everybody. So the key is to know how you're feeling. You know, if you're feeling great, that's a good sign. If you start feeling like overly obsessed with food and you have the urge to binge, that's your body telling you you're over-restricting. Really pay attention to how you feel and learn to trust that your body is going to let you know. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that about the 72 hours. Then there's also the question, though, because for a lot of people, it seems that at 72 hours, at least from that study, that you know the metabolism is going down. But then also I've read that at that three-day-ish point is when you're really switching into a ketotic, you know, really fasted state. So maybe the downregulated metabolism isn't necessarily an indicator of, you know, permanent damage that. Oh, I didn't, I'm not saying it's going to be permanent damage because the metabolism is resilient. You know, we look at overfeeding studies, people, you know, you look at the Minnesota starvation experiment and so many fascinating lessons in that study. The way that they refed them varied from group to group, and that was interesting. Overfeeding can absolutely raise your metabolism right back up. It's not like you're going to damage it forever. Like the biggest losers who had the the slowest, that biggest loser study, I know you've heard of that. The ones who, who continued to have more slowdown were the ones who continued the hardest. Like the ones who were able to maintain their weight the most, I think, are the ones who had more slowdown because they were still dieting hard. But you, you can raise your metabolic rate again. Overfeeding will do it. Of course, that comes along with weight gain if you're really, you know, for most of us. It's really complicated. And then... <laughs> I will not go into this tangent again, but there's also the difference in overfeeding on metabolism boosting foods versus metabolism slowing foods like polyunsaturated fats. So yeah, food quality does matter. And so many factors. Well, I'm not saying, well, well, I'm saying people might, people might see certain foods as high quality, but they might actually be, they might actually hinder the metabolism. Whereas other substrates, you know, might not. So it's very complicated and very individual. 
it is is so much. And we just don't have, you know, wouldn't it be nice if it worked like, you know, a mathematical formula? And we could say here at this point, you should do this and then do that. And this is the exact thing to do. But because we're all so different, that's not the way it works. Like I've said before, somebody could follow me around, consume exactly what I do when I eat it and have completely different results than me. Yep. That's why you got to find what works for you and not what works for your friend or your sister or us. So the next question ties right into this, and I think we addressed it pretty well, but it comes from Amanda, and the subject is, is fasting really that intuitive? Actually, it is a little bit different. So she says, hey guys, love your podcast. I'm still catching up, but so far it's excellent content. I've heard you guys talk a lot about intuitive eating, which is awesome, but I've also heard you talk about feeling hungry while fasting and how to deal with that. So my question is, how are we being intuitive and listening to our bodies when we don't eat when hungry so much of the day? I know hunger usually lessens over time with IF and sometimes while fasting, we're truly not hungry, but sometimes we truly are hungry, right? Your stomach growls and you want to eat in that moment. Isn't that ignoring your body? And if so, how is that really intuitive? Or maybe you guys mean the intuitive part comes in only during your eating window. I'm confused. Okay, this was actually a great question. So two parts here. The first one is, how are we being intuitive if we're ignoring our hunger? The second question is, are we talking about being intuitive while fasting or while eating? Which I don't think we've had that question. So this is really, really great. So for the first one, how are we being intuitive if we're ignoring our hunger signals? But we're not ignoring our hunger signals. We're listening to them and deciding whether this is the hunger signal that's just a mechanical action or a wave that comes and goes, or is it a true gotta eat now signal? That's where you become intuitive. You don't have to listen to every growl because every growl isn't a signal that you need to eat right then. And that's what you learn how to address over time. Let me give you an example of that from my past week. I went to a concert with my son on Saturday and stayed up late and ate a little later than normal. But I also didn't have any vegetables at all that day, like zero, because we were out of town. I had a fabulous burger and fries at a restaurant. Then I had a cheese plate at like 11 (laughs) a.m. I mean, 11 p.m., not a.m., 11 p.m. because I needed a little something else. Then I went to bed. And so there was not a vegetable in sight. And a couple days before that, I hadn't really had a lot of vegetables in my meal. Then the very next day, I was hungry, hungrier than normal, midday. And I started eyeing this spinach that I had in the fridge. And it was part of this gnocchi meal. It was like spinach and gnocchi and tomatoes. And I was like, I need to eat that right now. So I made myself lunch. It just felt different. It's like my body was crying out for nutrients in a different kind of way. And so I ate it, and it was delicious. And then I had dinner that day also. And then the next day, I was right back in, you know, it, it just felt different. And it, I know it's hard to explain, hard to describe, but I, I knew that my body needed a little something else that day because our bodies are searching for nutrients. And that was me being intuitive on that day and realizing I'm probably hungry because I hadn't had as many nutrients the past few days as my body has needed. But I don't always, you know, take every growl and think, oh my gosh, I'm hungry. I have to push that signal down. That's not really what happens. That's not really how it feels. I'm not pushing through the signals that I must eat now. I don't know if I explained that very well. It's hard to understand until you've, you've felt it and done it. 
No, yeah, I think that, I think you described it really well and that was a really great example. And I think, so a huge part of this is actually, it's an, it's an irony and it comes into the quote, intuitive nature of our bodies to both seek out fuel for, you know, you know, in the moment and the nourishment that we need to sustain our life in that moment versus the also quote, intuitive drive that likely exists to, and I mean, this is debated, but likely exists to encourage overeating. If you're familiar with Stefan Guillenet, he has a book called The Hungry Brain. The subtitle is Outsmarting the Instincts That Make Us Overeat. And basically his thesis in that book is that we are hardwired intuitively to eat, quote, you know, like all the things like, like our, because our body, you know, isn't certain of the future and that fuel is coming in. So when we are exposed to food, especially hyperpalatal food, high calorie food that we can easily, you know, store as body fat, that we intuitively do want to eat, eat, eat it because we want to store, store, store it so that we will have ample energy for the future when energy might not be coming in. It would be so easy if we could just tell the instinctual physical part of our body that's not the same as our you know conscious mind if we could say it's okay <laughs> we'll have a meal tomorrow but we can't really you know talk to our bodies like that so th- this actually is an irony because in a way eating you know the food constantly even when you're not hungry for that moment you could argue that that is intuitive because our body wants to store up food so I think what you have to really look at and see in the moment is, am I, is this hunger coming because I intuitively need it to fuel me in this present moment? I need some sort of nutrient for this present moment, or is it coming from that more instinctual evolutionary drive to stock up for the long run? And I think that is the one that we can ignore and we, or we can, you know, we can say no to, and we can curtail versus the actually needing the nourishment in that moment for yeah that moment so it's it's actually pretty complicated so in a way i mean you can argue that i don't know you can ar- you could argue that overeating is intuitive in a way and then for her second question i guess we did talk about this so we're, we are we're talking about it being intuitive both with the fasting and with the eating so by intuitive i guess it is, it's coming to have this more nuanced perspective that we're talking about. This nuanced perspective where understanding the difference between cravings and hunger, the difference, basically, why do we want food at any certain moment? I think that's what we're trying to tackle here. Like, why do I want this food? And making choices that support your overall health, your overall happiness, your, over, your overall energy. I think that's what we're really striving for. Yeah. And and just understanding, you know, every every time you eat, did you need it right then? And will it help you? you know, is it helping you in the moment? Do you need it in the moment? And also an hour from now, will you be glad that you ate? You know, like the day that I, I opened my window and had lunch because I felt like I needed some nutrients and I was hungry in a different kind of way. I did like have a little afternoon slump after that. 
And I knew I would before I ate it. <laughs> and I was like, am I going to mind having a slump or am I going to be sorry that I did it? And I'm like, no, I, I need to eat today. I feel like I need to. So that was, you know, I asked myself, would it be worth the slump? And the answer was yes. So over time, you really do become better at knowing what you need to do in any given moment. And sometimes, you know, you just choose to open your window because you want to and there's an event going on and there's a reason to eat early and you just do it, whether you need it or not, because food is pleasure. But a lot of the the eating thoughts that we have during the day are less about the fact that we're truly hungry and that we truly need to eat it. And a lot of them are just about the fact that food is pleasurable and it's enjoyable to eat at that moment. So now we have time for one more question, and this is from Lauren, and the subject is red wine, keeping it fresh. Lauren says, hello, I recently started IF, and I'm a weekend and feeling great. Your podcasts are very informative and entertaining, and I'm really enjoying them. I have a major sweet tooth and have become accustomed to eating something sweet after dinner. Even with IF, I find that I still want some kind of little dessert after my dinner. Me too, Lauren. She says, I'm thinking that some dark chocolate paired with some red wine could be a great alternative to some of the sketchier things I've been having. Oops. And that was her oops, not mine. But I love it, Lauren, because I'm an oopser. (laughs) She said, anyway, I'm wondering about your view on chocolate. And I also wonder how I can keep the red wine fresh when I'm only having a glass or two per night. Doesn't red wine go bad if you keep opening and closing the bottle all week? Thanks for reviewing my question. All right, Melanie, what do you think? All right. Well, I obviously really love this question from Lauren. Oh, that's another pronunciation one, Jen. I think I talked about this on the podcast before. In the South, how do you say her name? Everybody says it the same way. Lauren? Lauren. Like law, like law, like like the word law, right? Or like lawyer. How do you say lawyer? Lawyer. Lauren. Yeah. Yeah. But the other people say like Lauren and lawyer. Oh. When I moved to California, I would always say Lauren and people were like, what are you saying? Really? That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So chocolate, first of all, chocolate. Well, I've actually, are you a chocolate or a vanilla person, Jen? Well, you know, that's a tricky question because I'm both. It just depends. You're the the swirl? No, I don't want it swirled. No, no. Don't get me wrong. I don't want them together. I love chocolate and I love vanilla and I love them as separate things. So it just depends. Sometimes I want chocolate. Sometimes I want vanilla. Like I'm crazy about white chocolate, for example. Do you know the difference between cacao and cocoa? I mean, they come from the same plant, right? Cacao is like the bean and it's like the thing in there. And then cocoa comes from the processing. Is that right? Yeah, the cacao powder I think is the more um, straight from the bean. And then the cocoa powder is more processed. That's what I was thinking. But in general, so, I mean, I've always um, been more of a vanilla person. (laughs) Like I never really craved chocolate and I still never really craved chocolate. I can remember craving chocolate in my life, like maybe three times. Oh, really? Oh yeah. No, no. I, I, uh, yeah. Then in which case I'm, yeah, I do like chocolate. And at those t- times, and this was all like while doing fasting and becoming, speaking of being intuitive. <laughs> so when those times happened, I was like, oh, clearly there must be some nutrient in chocolate that my body needs at this moment. Because I would be, cra- I wouldn't be craving like, you know, like a milk chocolate bar. I was craving like dark, 
like the pure powder, like the the 90, the 100%. <laughs> but in any case, so chocolate it has been shown to have a lot of health benefits. So it's super rich in flavanols, antioxidants, magnesium. They've shown that it might support cardiovascular health, blood pressure, cholesterol, even insulin levels. And they've even found some studies where it's been scientifically, I'm saying scientifically, like because they did the studies, shown to actually boost mood and reduce stress levels. So yeah, basically it can have a lot of health benefits. And I think it has a really healthy place in people's lives. I think what's really important is not going for, you know, the super processed refined commercial forms that are filled with added dairy, fat, sugar, that, I don't know, that's a little bit debatable. I would really encourage you to look for the darker chocolate ones that are, you know, free of a lot of additives that are, that are you know, like 85% or more of, I don't know if it'd be cocoa or cacao, you know, when they say the percent. Yeah, I feel like that's cocoa in that case. I don't know. Probably. In any case, if you want to be on the super health train for chocolate, probably be best to err on the darker side is the takeaway. Do you have thoughts on chocolate before we go into wine? Yeah, I think you, you covered chocolate very well. Dark chocolate, great choice. And yeah, I, I'm now at the point where I like higher quality. Like I can remember every every Halloween, I would go get those Reese's peanut butter cups that were like pumpkins and I would stash them away when they went on sale and then I would eat them slowly till they were gone. Oh my gosh. I loved those, Jen. Oh, those were so good. The ones that were like, um, the pumpkin ones that were like kind of skinny. Yep. So good. Yep. Like flat. They were like flat, right? Right. And a lot of peanut butter. A lot, I love, I'm crazy about peanut butter. But then suddenly like last October, I was in Target shopping and all the candy was on sale. And I looked at them, maybe even the last two Halloweens, I'm not sure, but I looked at the bag of them and I'm like, eh, no, I don't like that. I don't like it anymore. It just seemed all of a sudden like they're just overly sickly sweet. Like my tastes have changed. I don't want them. Now, does that mean I don't like the taste of chocolate and peanut butter together? No, I still love it, but I want a higher quality. Like I really, like I might go to Sprouts and buy a really high quality organic version. I really can taste the difference in the higher quality ingredients. So anyway, there's that. (laughs) It makes a huge difference. I just can't believe I no longer like it. And, you know, if you're looking for something sweet, here's my latest obsession. Medjool dates. I mean, you could just eat those by themselves. The Medjool dates. Is that how you say it? Medjool, M-E-D-J-O-O-L. I think so. I think so. Well, I am obsessed with Medjool dates because they are like nature's candy. And every night I'm eating a few at the um, at the end of my window, it seems like. And they're great with goat cheese or cream cheese. But my favorite way to have them recently is I might just have like three or four and I'll put a little peanut butter on them. I mean, it is like a thousand times better than any Reese's peanut butter cup could ever have been in my life. So I don't know, maybe my my body's craving something they've got, but those Medjool dates with goat cheese, cream cheese, or peanut butter. Uh, Y'all try it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like for any craving you have, I feel like you you can find some sort of healthy alternative. And even if it doesn't seem quite as amazing right at that moment, I think you can you know, retrain your brain to crave more healthy things. Also, little side note, tip and trick, you are more likely to crave in the future, crave something that you had when you were really hungry. Yeah, I think you've told us that trick before. 
Yeah. So for, for new listeners or, and just to reiterate it, because I think it's really, really important. So if you're starving, especially maybe you're breaking your fast, this, I think this could be really relevant for a lot of listeners. So that moment when you're breaking your fast, if you, especially if you're really hungry, don't at that moment, if there's, if there's a food that you're trying to cut out of your life for whatever reason, do not have that food at that moment that you're breaking your fast, that you're really hungry because your brain will start to really crave that even more and associate that with, oh, this is the thing that I need. So that's a little tip and trick is to have something that you want to keep in your life permanently, have those things when you're hungry. That's a great tip. But really, if someone put medjool dates with peanut butter next to Reese's peanut butter cups, I would go for the dates and peanut butter every time now. It's really crazy because I used to be so into those peanut butter cups. Like they were my, I would steal them from my children's um, Halloween baskets. (laughs) But it's like for me now, I think the one thing I would eat the most, but the problem is it doesn't agree with me at all. I've talked about it before, cashews. (laughs) Let me just have a little funeral morning party. They just don't agree with me. But they're they're a whole food. That's why it's so good. Yeah, I'm not crazy about cashews. Although I do like them in cooking, like in Asian cooking that uses cashews. That's good. Yum. I do like that. Oh, I will say, by the way, before we get to Lauren's second question really quick, Lauren, I think you would really like my book to shamelessly plug it again. For example, it has a whole section on chocolate. So you could have just looked up chocolate and it would have all been there. And it has obviously all the questions about wine. And it has an index, listeners. So you can look up anything really quick. I already said this, Jim, but I really wish now I could retitle it in a way to take wine out of the title because so many people tell me that they don't read it because they think it's all about wine when it's not, it's not. But in any case, speaking of wine, so Lauren wants to know how she can keep her red wine fresh when she's only having a glass or two per night. Doesn't red wine go bad if you keep opening and closing the bottle all week? Well, first of all, so a slight little irony in here. If you're, if you're having a glass or two per night, that would mean that the bottle would only last maximum four days. And if you're having two glasses a night, it would only last two days. So not so much of a problem there. I think most red wines, I mean, it depends, but a lot of them can go, you know, four days in the fridge. I really, really love, and I, I've done research on this and people say different things, but I really love those vacuum vent things. Do you use those? That's what I was going to say. That's what we love too. I've got one. Yeah. I feel like they work. That's what these at restaurants, they usually have like a pressurized system, but it's the same thing. Basically it's like these cork stoppers that you put in and you pump out the extra air because in theory, it's the oxygen, well, not in theory, (laughs) in real, in truth, it's the oxygen causing the wine to oxidize. So, oh, that's where the theory comes in. In theory, by using the vacuum vent, you're pumping out that extra oxygen, preserving the wine. I think it works. It seems to work for me, even if it's like placebo. So I will put a link to those in the show notes. They also come in really fun colors. So mine, mine are like pink and blue and purple. So I'll put links to the pink and blue and purple ones. If you want to get really fancy, you can also do things like, well, there's also this, this I've never used it, but there's this spray that you can like spray into your wine bottle. It's not like a, a toxic additive. It's just some sort of gas that actually changes the oxygen to a, an, an inert gas so that it doesn't bother the wine. I haven't personally tried it. I think it doesn't it like, I thought it sealed off like it, like it like just covered it like a, I don't know. No, this is the one that actually like changes the composition of the gases. There's also that thing that like tasting machine thing that like drills a tiny little, this is different, but it drills a hole into 
the cork so that you can siphon out a taste without opening the bottle. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, I just use my little vacuum vin. I use that. It works. We've been using them for years. Yep, so I'll put a link to that in show notes. And of course, we can't have a wine discussion without plugging the most amazing go-to wine company. Obsessed with it, Dry Farm Wines. So if you're looking for wine and you want to get all the health benefits of wine, and this sounds like an advertisement, but guys, it's because I'm so passionate about about this and I will never stop drinking Dry Farm Wines. They make all organic wines. They test all of their, they don't make them, sorry. They distribute them. So they go all throughout the world. They find wineries that practice organic practices, especially a lot of like small wineries. So they're really supporting, you know, a lot of small farms in Europe and things like that, which is great. But they test the wines to be low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold. Yeah. So basically the really health supportive type of wine. So if you personally can't drink wine, you feel like you get negative reactions, you might be able to drink dry farm wines. And if you go to dryformwines.com slash ifpodcast and use the code ifpodcast, you get a bottle for a penny with your first order, which is awesome. And the only reason it's a penny is because you can't, I don't know if you knew this, Jen, you can't like give away alcohol. That's why it's a penny and not free. So yeah. All right. Well, this is wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go, if you want to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. Also at the website, that's where I'll put show notes for this episode. So the show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 117. I'll put links to any of the studies we discussed, all of the products like the vacuum van, the dry farm wines, all of those things. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast and you can follow us on Twitter. We are the ifpod. And lastly, we are a Himalaya partnered show. So if you'd like to get access to our podcast 24 hours in advance, download the Himalaya app. Follow our show. You'll get access 24 hours in advance. Also, the Himalaya app is like my favorite app for listening to podcasts. So just saying. All right. Anything else from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that's it. Making me crave a little red wine. All righty. Well, <laughs> and now I know what time it is for you. I don't have to like adjust mentally in my head. Yeah, it's true because we're on the same coast. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.